Chapter Eight of Outwitting the Hun: My Escape from a German Prison Camp by Pat O'Brien. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: Nine Days in Luxembourg. I was now heading northwest, and I thought that by keeping that course, I would get out of Luxembourg and into Belgium, where I expected to be a little better off, because the people in Luxembourg were practically the same as Germans. One of the experiences I had in Luxembourg, which I shall never forget, occurred the first day that I spent there. I had travelled all night, and I was feeling very weak. I came to a small wood with plenty of low underbrush, and I picked out a thick clump of bushes which was not in line with any paths, crawled in, and lay down to spend the day. The sun could just reach me through an opening in the trees above, and I took off all my clothes except my shirt and hung them on the bushes to dry in the sun. As the sun moved, I moved the clothes around correspondingly, because, tired as I was, I could only take cat-naps. That afternoon I awoke from one of these naps with a start. There were voices not a dozen feet from me. My first impulse was to jump to my feet and sell my life as dearly as I could, but on second thoughts I decided to look before I leaped. Peeping through the underbrush, I could just discern two men calmly chopping down a tree and conversing as they worked. I thanked my lucky stars that I had not jumped up on my first impulse, for I was apparently quite safe as long as I lay where I was. It then occurred to me that if the tree upon which they were working should happen to fall in my direction, it would crush me to death. It was tall enough to reach me and big enough to kill me if it landed in my direction, and as I could see only the heads of the men who were chopping it down, I was unable to tell which way they planned to have it fall. There was this much in my favor. The chances of the tree falling in just my direction were not very great, and there was more than an even chance that the men would be wise enough to fell it so that it would not, because if it landed in the bushes the task of trimming the branches off the trunk would be so much harder. But even without this feeling of security there was really nothing else I could do but wait and see what fate had in store for me. I lay there watching the top of the tree for more than an hour. Time and again I saw it sway and fancied it was coming in my direction, and it was all I could do to keep my place, but a moment later I would hear the crash of the men's axes, and I knew that my imagination had played me a trick. I was musing on the sorry plight I was in, weak, nearly starving to death, a refugee in a hostile country, and waiting patiently to see which way a tree was going to fall when there came a loud crack, and I saw the top of the tree sway and fall almost opposite to the place where I lay. I had guessed right. Later I heard some children's voices, and again peering through the underbrush, I saw that they had brought them in their lunch. You can't realize how I felt to see them eating their lunch so near at hand, and to know that, hungry as I was, I could have none of it. I was greatly tempted to go boldly up to them and take a chance of getting a share, but I did not know whether they were Germans or not, and I had gone through too much to risk my liberty even for food. I swallowed my hunger instead. 
Shortly afterward it began to rain, and about four o'clock the men left. I crawled out as fast as I could and scurried around looking for crumbs, but found none, and when darkness came I went on my way once more. That night I came to a river, and as it was the first time my clothes had been dry for a long time, I thought I would try to keep them that way as long as possible. I accordingly took off all my things and made them into two bundles, planning to carry one load across and then swim back for the other. The river was quite wide, but I am a fairly good swimmer, and I figured I could rest a while after the first trip before going back for the second bundle. The first swim was uneventful. When I landed on the other side, I drank till my thirst was quenched, and then swam back. After resting a while, I started across a third time, with my shoes and several other things firmly tied to my head. Just about ten feet from the opposite bank, one of the shoes worked its way loose and sank in about eight feet of water. There was nothing to do but finish the trip and then go back and dive for the missing shoe, as I could not go on with a single shoe. Diving in my weakened condition was considerable strain, but I had to have that shoe, and I kept at it for nearly an hour before I eventually found it, and I was pretty nearly all in by that time. That was the last time I ever took my shoes off, for my feet were becoming so swollen that I figured if I took my shoes off I might be unable to get them on again. This stunt of crossing the river and diving for the lost shoe had consumed about three hours, and after resting some fifteen minutes I went on my way again. I had hardly gone a mile when I came to another river, about the same size as the one I had just crossed. I walked along the bank a while, thinking that I might be lucky enough to find a boat or a bridge, but after walking about half an hour I received one of those disappointments which come once in a lifetime. I found that this river was the one I had just swum. I had swum it on the bend, and was still on the wrong side. Had I made only a short detour in the first place, I would have avoided all the annoyance of the past three hours and saved my strength and time. I was never so mad in my life at myself as I was to think that I had not paid more attention to the course of the stream before I undertook to cross it. But as a matter of fact, there was really no way of telling. The river was not shown on my map at all. Now I had to cross it, whereas before I could have turned it. I walked boldly into the water, not bothering to take my clothes off this time, nor did I ever bother to take them off afterward when swimming canals or rivers. I found it was impossible to keep them dry anyway, and so I might just as well swim in them and save time. All the next day I spent in a forest to which my night's travel had brought me about five o'clock in the morning. I kept on my way through the woods until daylight came, and then, thinking the place would afford fairly good concealment, I concluded to rest until night. The prospects of even a good sleep were dismal, however, for about the time the sun's face should have appeared, a drizzling rain began, and I gave up my search for a dry spot which would serve as a bed. Some of the leaves were beginning to fall, but of course there were not enough of them to have formed a covering for the ground, and the dampness seemed to have penetrated everywhere. 
I wandered around through the woods for two or three hours, looking for shelter, but without any success, for though the trees were large, the forest was not dense, and there was practically no brush or shrubbery. Consequently, one could get a fairly clear view for some distance, and I knew it would be unwise to drop off to sleep just any place, or someone would surely happen on to me. Once I came very near the edge of the woods and heard voices of men driving by in a wagon, but I couldn't make out just what they were, and instinct told me I had better not come out of the woods, so I turned back. Here and there small artificial ditches had been dug, which at a dry season would have cradled a weary fugitive, but now they too were filled with water. Once I singled out a good big tree with large branches, and thought I might climb into it and go to sleep, but the longer I looked at it the more I realized that it would require more energy than I had in my present weak and exhausted condition, so I didn't attempt that. Finally, I chose a spot that looked a bit drier than the rest, concluded to take a chance on being discovered, and threw myself down for a nap. I was extremely nervous, though, throughout that whole day, and would scarcely get settled into a comfortable position and doze off for a few minutes, when, startled by some sound in the woods, I would suddenly waken. After what seemed like a year or more, night finally came and with it a dud sky, low-hanging clouds, and still more rain. There was not a star in the sky, of course, and that made it very bad, because without the aid of the stars I had absolutely no way of knowing in which direction I was going. It was just a case of taking a chance. I probably would have been better off if I had simply picked out a place and stayed there until the weather improved, but naturally I was impatient to be on my way when each day without food only lessened my strength and my ultimate chances of reaching the frontier. So I left the woods and struck off in the direction which I thought was north. I hadn't been at all sure of my bearings the day before, and as it had rained the sun failed entirely to help me out. But I was almost sure I had the right direction and trusted to luck. That night I found more rivers, canals, and swamps than I ever found in my life before, but I had the good fortune to stumble on to some celery, and after my diet of beets it surely was a treat. Perhaps it's unnecessary to add that I took on a good supply of celery, and for days I went along chewing celery like a cow would a cud. Along toward morning, when I supposed I had got in a fairly good lap of my journey, perhaps seven or eight miles, I began to recognize certain objects as familiar landmarks. At least I thought I had seen them before, and as I traveled along I knew positively I had seen certain objects very recently. Off at my right, not over a quarter of a mile, I noticed some fairly good-sized woods and thought I would go over there to hide that day, because it looked as though the sun was going to shine, and I hoped to get my clothes dry and perhaps get a decent sleep. I had this celery and a large beet, so I knew I would be able to live the day through. Finally I made my way over to the woods. It was still too dark in among the trees to do much in the way of selecting my quarters for the day and I could not go a step farther. 
so I waited on the edge of the forest until dawn, and then set out to explore the place with a view of finding some nook where I might sleep. Imagine my disgust and discouragement, too, when an hour or so later I came upon the exact place where I had spent the day before, and I realized that all night long I had been circling the very woods I was trying to get away from. I think perhaps I had gone all of a quarter of a mile in the right direction, but then had lost my bearings entirely, and daylight found me with nothing accomplished. The sun, however, did come out that day, and I welcomed its warm rays as they perhaps had never been welcomed before. I was very tired, just about all in, but I spent a better day in the woods than the previous one. That night the stars came out. I located my friend, the North Star, and tried to make up for lost time. But when one is making only seven or eight miles a day, or rather a night, one night lost means a whole lot, especially when each day keeps him from freedom. Such ill fortune and discouragements as this were harder to endure, I believe, than the actual hunger, and the accompanying worry naturally reduced my weight. At times I was furiously angry with myself for the mistakes I made and the foolish things I did, but I always tried to see something funny about the situation, whatever it might be, that relieved the strain a bit and helped to pass the time. I think if a man is overburdened with a sense of humor and wants to get rid of it, this trip I took would be an excellent remedy for it. Right at this time I would have welcomed anything for a companion. I believe even a snake would have been a godsend to me. With a name as Irish as mine, it is only natural that I looked for goats along the way, thinking that I might be able to milk them. There are very few cows in this country, and the opportunities for milking them fewer than the cows themselves, because they are housed in barns adjoining the homes and always alertly watched by their fortunate owners. I did hope that I might find a goat staked out some place in the fields, but in all my travels I never saw a goat or a pig, and only a few cows. Several times I searched nests for eggs, but somebody always had beaten me to it, as I never even found so much as a nest egg. There was no chance of getting away with any bullying stuff in Luxembourg, I knew, because the young men have not been forced into the army, and are still at home, and as they are decidedly pro-German, it would have been pretty hard for me to demand anything in that part of the country. It was not like taking things away from old men and women, or robbing people that could not stop me if they chose to do so. I thought at this time that I was suffering about the worst hardships any human being could ever be called upon to endure, but I was later to find out that the best of my journey was made along about this time. There were plenty of vegetables, even though they were raw, and these were much better than the things I was afterward compelled to eat or go without. We frequently hear of men who have lived for a certain number of days on their own resources in the woods, just on a bet or to prove that the back-to-nature theory still has its merits and will still work. My advice to some of those nature-seekers is to, if in the future they wish to make a real good record, 
try the little countries of Luxembourg and Belgium with a slice of Germany thrown in. I suppose that during this experience of mine I made many mistakes and traveled many unnecessary miles which one with a knowledge of woodsmanship might have avoided, and I failed to take advantage of many things which would have been quite apparent to one who knew. It must not be forgotten, however, that I did not undertake this adventure voluntarily. It was wished on me. I simply had to make the most of the knowledge I had. At about this time, blisters began to appear on my legs and my knees swelled. In addition, I was pretty well convinced that I had lost the sight of my left eye. I hadn't seen a thing out of it since my leap from the train. When I imagined the villainous appearance I must have presented at this time, my unhealed wounds, eighteen days' growth of beard, and general haggard and unkempt visage, I think the fear I felt about meeting strangers was perhaps unwarranted. The chances are they would have been infinitely more scared than I. As it was, I was nearly out of Luxembourg before I really came face to face with anyone. It was about six o'clock in the morning, and I was traveling along a regular path. Just as I approached a cross-path, I heard footsteps coming down it. I stopped short stooped over and pretended to be adjusting my shoelace, figuring that if the stranger turned into my path he would probably pass right by me. As luck would have it, he continued on his way and never noticed me at all. After that I frequently noticed groups of Luxembourg peasants in the distance, but I usually saw them first and managed to avoid them. About the eighteenth day after my leap from the train, I crossed into Belgium. It had taken me just nine days to get through Luxembourg, a distance which man could ordinarily cover in two, but considering the handicaps under which I labored, I was very well satisfied with my progress. End of chapter 8